the supernatural was what mainly drove people to Jesus. Then, as they stayed with him longer, and paid attention to him, it was his words that made them stick around for more. If we try to copy what he said and did in certain circumstances in the hope that we get the same results that he got, we might be setting up ourselves for defeat. Why copy? John Mason once said, you were born an original. Don't die a copy. This might be seem like sound advice, but in my humble opinion, is needless, because no one can become a copy of anyone. The closest thing we can achieve is to look like, sound like somebody, but we are never able to become a true copy of someone else. On the other hand, the process of copying is also natural, and not even consciously done. Therefore, it is unavoidable. A child imitates his parents, and later on close relatives, then, admirable friends, teachers, and finally, famous people. His character is influenced by the people he grows up with. There is of course a process of refinement as he matures, dropping off traits he deems as youthful or immature, but he copies those he appreciates as acceptable, or good. God created every person unique, and that means there is only one you, and no duplicate exists, anywhere, at any time, ever. The reason why I'm talking about copying or imitating others is that most people take human models to emulate after a decision process they made as to which character model they should follow for certain traits and behaviors. By this, I mean that a person can select celebrity X for the manner of speaking, and socialite B for dressing, politician Y for his generosity, etc. Which is also why, those who've been awakened out of their spiritual sleep, understand that it is best to copy Christ rather than man. But even with such a lofty goal, they soon find out that it is literally and practically impossible to imitate Christ. After all, there is no Jesus diary, nor is there even any chronicle or biography providing minute details of what he said and did, in a greater minutia than what the four gospels supply. Because of this, it is far easier to follow those who follow him, viz, the pastors, evangelists, prophets, teachers, ministers who are well known and respected in the church circle, and of course, in particular situations, Christians who are discipling other, younger Christians in the ways of God. Houston, we have a problem. As a result of this copying, we can't help but notice the environment our models thrive in. In a macro view, we not only notice how individuals behave, but also corporeally. And as we study these groups, or congregations or denominations, we begin to observe their best practices, and we see what we would label as marks of success, characteristics and behaviors worth emulating in our own congregation or denomination. And what louder measurement of success is there than numbers? Numbers in membership, resources and finances. We don't need to look very far to prove that. In your city, who heads the minister's association? Is it the most spiritually mature pastor, or the one with the biggest congregation? And so, every lesser pastor around him would want to be like the megachurch pastor. Those who espouse the idea that the size of church membership is irrelevant, would rather not say anything about it, otherwise, he will sound like a sour graper trying to justify his small congregation with scripture, to soothe his conscience, and numb the self-guilt of feeling like an underperformer. If you're this lesser or small-time pastor, this message just might be for you. Perhaps God will help you in finding the key to a truly explosive ministry that impacts eternity, in ways you never thought about. If you're a big-time pastor, I pray God also enlighten your heart and spirit, free you from a false sense of success, and the accompanying pride that it can breed, and perhaps help refocus your ministry and purpose, and help you keep your earthly gains at the judgment seat of Christ. What have we got here? Today, if you would ask any pastor or church leader if they would like to see their membership increase, you would invariably get an affirmative answer. These are noble aspirations, and also have basis in scripture as we see during the early days of the church where thousands were converted by a single preaching. Sincere and well-meaning pastors, 
hoping to succeed in the work of the Lord, want to experience that same phenomenon of adding more people to their congregations. Because of this inner desire, this creates a market for Christian scholars who have gone around the world collecting information and data about megachurches, to sell these information to the many other lesser congregations. Some have written books on them, labeling them as recipes for church growth. Still others try to look into, probe, analyze and study the methods that Jesus employed, as he ministered to people. Who is the minister who doesn't want to be in on his secret, which resulted in huge crowds following and crowding around him, nearly wherever he would go? Of course, all these desires to succeed are carefully laid side by side with, or justified by scripture, to ensure compliance, and avoid being accused of engaging in extra-biblical activities. The final nail to the argument, is, they say that this is in fulfillment of the Great Commission. On the surface, this would seem good, and indeed, when a congregation grows to a few hundred and even thousands, church people would accept this as success. But did Jesus really have a secret method? And so we would notice the other small churches would study the methods of these successful congregations, and try to copy them in their own settings. Of course, they would also copy-paste the same motives into their actions to stifle the conviction of acting out of wrong motives, or what the Bible calls the sin of presumption. This whole system tends to breed teachers, consultants, and so-called para-church groups that act as resource persons, experts to other smaller congregations who are lusting for this brand of success, and of course, get paid for their services. You know the drill. And so we build our own system, and tout it as the way to church's success. After all, if this was how Zai's megachurch built itself to what it is today, why shouldn't it work for my small, 123 church? What really happened? How did Jesus build such an enormous following? Where did this big crowd come from? We need to consider the four basic reasons why the Jews, at the time the Lord walked in Palestine, were eager to seek him, hear him and follow him, and then, the most important reason behind his fame and success. He had a fan base just waiting for him. We need to remember John the Baptist's disciples. For the first followers and crowd, we need to look no farther than the one who prepared the way of the Lord. As John performed the ministry entrusted to him by God, he preached repentance, and told his disciples what the fruit of righteous repentance looked like, Luke 3 10-14. John had a good following, from a wide swath of society which included ordinary people, tax collectors and even soldiers. When he was in prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus, supposedly for verification of Jesus' identity, if Jesus was really the Messiah, Matthew 11:3. This is covered in my other essay discussing John's doubt and discouragement while in prison. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was a disciple of John, John 1:40. It is very likely that friends of Andrew joined him in following Jesus, including those sent by John and who received confirmation from Jesus about his identity and mission. These all probably joined and followed Jesus. In John's absence from ministry, those other repentant and baptized listeners might have decided to continue their spiritual walk and growth with Jesus, more especially after witnessing his wonders and miracles, which was ostensibly absent in John's ministry. In John 3, we also find that Jesus also baptized people, John 3:22. Well, not him personally, but his disciples, John 4 2. His crowd was bigger than John's. See John 3 26. He was mysterious and hard to figure out. For those who were not in the initial crowd, let us remember that the Jews were expecting the politico-military messiah. Since the fall, the Jews, especially those who had read or heard the creation account from the writings of Moses, had always looked for the promised seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. This divine avenger would come forth out of the race that would spring from Abraham the man who received the special call from God, and with whom he established a covenant. 
Throughout Abraham's journey, growing from a family, into a tribe, into a people, until their bondage in Egypt and their liberation as a nation on their way to the Promised Land, every Jewish family hoped that out of their family would come forth the Messiah, or the Christ. You might say that whenever someone remarkable appeared on the scene, they would wonder if he was the Messiah, Luke 3:15. It was not difficult to obtain a following, if you were daring and vocal. The only thing that made Jesus incredible or unbelievable to the religious leaders was because he was not vocally anti-Roman, and therefore, not likely to lead a revolt and restore the kingdom of Israel. When Jesus came along, he became a top candidate for kingship over the nation, John 6:15, and people were naturally drawn to him and followed him around. They were waiting for someone to anoint him in the announcement of his assumption of the kingship. He performed deeds that they never heard or had seen before. As the initial crowd begat a bigger crowd, aren't we all naturally inquisitive at why a crowd is gathered? This people received astonishment after astonishment, at the wonders and miracles he performed. No prophet had ever turned water into wine, opened the eyes of a man born blind, John 9:32, or caused the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, could cast out devils, walked on water, or calmed a storm with a word, or multiplied food or brought people back alive from death. His works met people's needs, and they felt protected and safe being with him, remember the woman that would have been stoned to death in John 8. On the other hand, for anyone who had the chance to watch any of his miracles, but didn't bother to listen to his message, he was simply entertainment for them. He spoke in a way like no one ever spoke before. He encouraged those who honestly and sincerely wanted to follow him, but turned off and away the easily offended, John 6:66. He spoke with power, Luke 4:36, that his enemies challenged his authority and command of the word, Matthew 21:23, Mark 11:28, Luke 22. He challenged the wise men much older than him with profound questions they found difficult to answer, Luke 2:46. He gave parables that intentionally were at times very clear and at other times very confusing, Matthew 13:13, 13, 13, Mark 4:11. Luke 8:10, John 10:6. And most importantly, his words were life unto his hearers, John 5:24, John 6:63. He was an enigma, but his words pierced the hearts of his hearers, and they understood in their heart of hearts that these words could only be divine, John 6:68. His love was the secret. At the core of Jesus' mission was his love for fallen man. He always ministered to people out of love, even if that ministry took the form of a harsh rebuke. He knew that for such people, a rebuke is what is really needed to make them recognize God's love for them. Proverbs 27:5. Open rebuke is better than secret love. This part really deserves a whole treatment, but let it be said that Jesus treated his followers and people around him as a loving father would do his children. He suffered their childishness and lack of understanding, their infighting, their stubbornness, their pride, and worked in and through their weaknesses to bring about the character they would have in God. He always looked at people in love, and it was in his looks, voice, gestures, touch that people found irresistible. In each encounter with him, he brought them an experience they would never forget the rest of their lives. His fame spread like wildfire because the people he ministered to experienced something truly supernatural, and they could not keep themselves from talking about it. So when he was crucified, died, was buried and rose again, everything he spoke, taught, and did, they also lived and taught, not the methods, but the principles behind them, in and with the love of God. That is the ultimate copying we should aspire and strive for. That is why Jesus was, and still is, a soul magnet. Conclusion So, no, it's not true that man is born an original. God said he made us in his own image and likeness. It is quite easy to watch others, and ape their good actions. But it is another thing to grasp their emotions, and therefore, know the reason for their actions. Our texts tell us that his miracles brought him fame, and a huge following. 
to those among us today who are trying to copy Jesus' methods to the letter, in the hopes of duplicating his amazing works, sorry. These supernatural works will become our major obstacle, and failure, except if the love of God and for his people is the driving force behind everything we do for his kingdom and glory. The degree of Christ's likeness we manifest is directly proportional to the love of God that we shed abroad from our hearts to others.